you weren't here, or if you were, just as a reminder, we saw that Jesus is the Christ. He is the King that God had promised that he was going to send to come and rescue his people. He really is that King, but he was going to be crucified. He was going to be killed. And then we also saw him lay down that call of discipleship, that to be a disciple of Jesus is to deny self, turn our backs on ourselves, to take up our cross daily, to die, as it were, to ourselves and our own interests, and follow him, even if that means rejection. Maybe the the kind of question is, really? Really, Jesus? How does that work? We don't think of someone meekly walking down the roads to their own death, their unjust death. We don't think of someone doing that as being a particularly strong or powerful thing. Uh, A while back I was reading a a novel about the the Spartans, those Greek warriors. And for them, glory was fighting relentlessly against the enemy, not giving any grounds, fighting to their last death. Now, right, we're a bit more toned down from them, okay? But nonetheless, a king who is going to be killed and does nothing to stop it, that doesn't seem to make sense. Maybe a Christian, and you're, you're feeling that cost of discipleship. It is hard, it is painful. Like, really? Is this how it should be? Is this the right way? Is it worth it? Well, I guess when, with these, these things in our minds, these, these, these truth of, of Jesus, him being the Christ, and the call of discipleship, what we find today is absolute confirmation that that is right. That Jesus is the Christ, he is going to be crucified, and to follow him really does mean that radical sacrifice. Uh, when, when Poi was reading it so well, I, I wonder if you we're covering quite a lot of ground and you think some of these things, how, how do they fit together? But, but I do think Luke links these things for us that they do come as a unit and indeed it starts with a link back into last week's chapter so we uh, find in verse 28 now about eight days after these sayings So after all that Jesus said, links it back. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He takes them up a mountain, and Jesus is praying. And again, we've seen repeatedly, when Jesus is praying, something significant usually happens. And what we find is these these three things that reinforce that Jesus is the crucified Christ. Three things that reinforce that Jesus is the crucified Christ. Firstly, verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Okay, this is not a personal advert. This is not a, a kind of cartoon. The, the real event, this, this happened. Jesus' clothes shone a dazzlingly, blindingly bright. The appearance of his face was, was changed. Don't know kind of how or what. 
But what we see here is just for a brief moment, Peter, James, and John see a glimpse of Jesus' true glory. They get this snapshot of Jesus as he ultimately is. If there were any doubts that what Peter said, that he is the Christ, if there any doubts, they're gone. Wow, here he is. This is the Christ. And any doubts that we might have in terms of suffering might make him weak, that, that suffering couldn't make him glorious, will think again. This is Jesus in his natural glory. But in case that's not enough, something else happens. So verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Excuse me, it's not coffee to keep me awake. It's uh, lemon and honey for the throat, but I'm only going for it quite a bit. Moses and Elijah, two like great heroes of the Old Testament. And between them, they, they represent the message of the Old Testament. Okay, because Moses, he, he wrote those first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch. And Elijah, perhaps the, the most famous um, and best known of the prophets, representing much of the rest of the, the Old Testaments. And here, Moses and Elijah, alive and well, appear with Jesus on the mountain. Did you notice what they're doing there? They're, they're talking with Jesus and they're speaking of his upcoming death. Though interestingly, the words for departure is, is the word exodus. They're speaking of his exodus. Now, if we know our, our Old Testaments, we know that the exodus was Moses, or through Moses, was the great salvation event of the Old Testaments. God's people rescued from slavery, rescued from death by the killing of the Passover lamb. And here they are speaking of Jesus' exodus. See, Jesus is going to bring the, the ultimate salvation events that even the, the, um, the exodus itself pointed to. But what we don't find here is we don't find Moses and Elijah saying, no, 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 Jesus, you're not, going to, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to be crucified. You're not going to suffer and be rejected. No, 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 you're the glorious Christ. You're going to come and turn everything upside down and rescue you from the Romans and all that. No. And did you notice again that as they were talking about his, um, his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word accomplish is that kind of word for fulfill. He was going to fulfill at Jerusalem. You see, because the whole message of the Old Testament, the whole message of Moses and Elijah and the prophets, that whole message was that Jesus... Jesus was going to suffer. The Christ was going to rescue his people, but he was going to do it by suffering. So Jesus' 
transfigured. He's changed. Glorious day that gets an amazing glimpse of him in his real glory. And there in that glory, Moses and Elijah come with him and, and they're all talking about what he's going to do. But if that's not enough, we get the thirds and perhaps the most impressive and important thing. Skip down to verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Here we have the father's affirmation too. So in, in Luke we find the, the father's uh, voice booming from heaven twice. First time at Jesus' baptism. Right there at the start of Jesus' public ministry, God's voice comes from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The father's affirmation, look, this is my son. I am pleased with him. And then the second time is right here after he's just explained that he's going to go and be crucified. And he's laid out what it means to be a disciple. Here is the, the father's stamp of approval, the most dramatic stamp of approval you could ever hope for. His voice audible from heaven. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one, my beloved one. Listen to him. There's no, no doubt. All that he said, there's no doubt. Listen to him. Now listen to him. Now of course that in a sense applies to, to everything, right? Jesus is the, should be the authoritative voice uh, for, for all his disciples and everything. But here, and specifically, he has in mind what Jesus has just been saying. Remember the connection between these, these events. And last week, it maybe was the, the, the first time that you heard that Jesus came and, and meant to die. That, that Jesus' death wasn't just a tragic accident of a life cut short. No, you, you did hear it right. Jesus knew he was going to die. Listen to him. And that in no way diminishes his greatness or his glory. In fact, it highlights it, doesn't it? That this Jesus, the one who is dazzlingly bright, blindingly bright in his true glory, that is the real Jesus. And yet he would come, lay aside that glory, and willingly be rejected, suffer, and die. That highlights his glory, although it's, in a sense, harder to see on a surface value. Ultimately, it is much more glorious. Listen to him. He really is that crucified Christ. And he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow him. That's the call of discipleship. We can't avoid it. This is the path that he calls us to follow. It's the one he's trod, and he calls us to come behind him. We might wish it was easier. We might wish it was less radical and less costly. But this is discipleship. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now we, we skipped over a little bit. Just, just come back to, to verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make 
uh, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Now, Peter gets a bit of a rough time, doesn't he, in the Gospels? You know, he's always the one to put his foot in his mouth. Um, but I think we can probably forgive him for this one. Right, there he is on this mountain, Jesus blindingly bright, Moses and Elijah. Wow, like you can forgive him for wanting this to last a little bit longer, can't you? But Peter still hasn't grasped that this glory, which is real, which is right, is for later. That glory is for later, after the suffering, rejection, and death. You see, Jesus came to to step into the mess and brokenness of this world. He's come to do something about it. As we said, he's, he's come to lay down his life. And then, again, that is what we see next. So as we move on to the, the second point, uh, trust in Jesus. So firstly, listen to Jesus. Secondly, trust in Jesus. And they, they, so uh, they come down from the mountain. Uh, it's the next day, and we're confronted with this, this tragic scene. Uh, verse 38. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. It's a tragic scene again, isn't it? Like so many of those we've seen in Luke. We have this father in distress. He's his only child. His only child is ill. It kind of seems like the symptoms of um, epilepsy. But, but we actually see here that it's not simply illness, um, but actually it's a, there's a spirit, an evil spirit at work in this person, in this young child. Horrible symptoms, horrible things to father to witness. And then the disciples, he does the right thing, right? But his disciples aren't able to do anything about it. Which is strange, because just look back to chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So Jesus has given them this authority, and yet here they are failing here. They fail to cast this spirit out. Jesus' response reveals the problem. Verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So Jesus is addressing the, the people as a whole. It's this, this generation that he's talking to. But I think that the disciples are very much included in that, very much in Jesus' mind. What was the problem? Well, they were faithless. Faithless. They didn't have faith. They didn't trust. It seems to be their inability to cast out this de- demon was something to do with their lack of faith. And Jesus does what they can't. Verse 42. 
while he was coming, sorry, so remember, he's called, he said to the man, bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon makes one last effort. The demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Here again, 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 we see Jesus' compassion. We see Jesus' power and authority. And the people marvel. But Jesus doesn't want the disciples to get caught up in this this, um, astonishment. Because see how the second half of verse 43 flows on. But while they were all marveling, so while this marveling is going on, uh, they're marveling at everything he was doing. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Right, get this. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. While they were marveling, while they were getting amazed, wow, again, Jesus' amazing authority of power and compassion, he takes this moment emphatically to say yet again that he is going to die. He's reiterating what he said nine or so days back. He is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they were going to do what they wanted with him, which was kill him. I've got to say, verse 45 puzzled me. Let me read it. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they may not, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Okay, they're, they're not understanding. That doesn't surprise me. It probably doesn't surprise you. They, they don't get it again and again and again. But it says a little bit um, in, in the middle there, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Kind of instinctively read that and go, God is the one who has concealed this from them. Because indeed, we, we saw uh, earlier in, in Luke that God, in his judgment, does conceal truth from some. I don't think that is what's going on here. The whole context, to me, of, the, of this verse is, is they should be getting it, but they don't. The Father has just said, listen to him. Jesus says, let this sink into your ears. They want them to get this. So I think when it is um, saying it was concealed from them, I think it's just a, such a picture of their blindness and their inability to get it. It's like it's hidden from them. They just don't get it. And so what we hear is a quadruple negative to show how far off they are from grasping it. They didn't understand it. It was concealed from them. That they, they did not perceive it, the kind of result. And they were afraid to ask him about it. It just shows how a million miles off they still are. Now, we have the benefit of knowing the the full package, don't we? We have the rest of the New Testament that explains the significance of Jesus being delivered into the hands of men. We know that this, again, was his plan, his his ultimate exodus um, salvation plan. May we not be a faithless and twisted generation. Trust him. Have faith that he is the one who's come into this broken world, who has already come, who was delivered into the hands of men to do something about this brokenness, to bring salvation. Trust in this 
Jesus. This really is who he is. And then finally, thirdly, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Things get worse for the disciples. I don't think it could, but it does. Verse 46. And arguments arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Oh dear. Almost beggars belief, does it not? Jesus has been teaching repeatedly about his humble sacrifice. The glorious Christ who they've just seen a snapshot, some of them have seen a snapshot of the greatness of Jesus. And he has humbled himself to come and be delivered into the hands of men. And he's followed the, he's called them to follow on this path. And here they are bickering about who's the greatest. Again, they're pecking order. I wonder about how it came, came up. Was it James and John? Oh, boys, did you miss out on what we saw? Ooh, I'm afraid you're not ready for that, so I can't tell you about it. But it was pretty exciting. Was it Peter? Don't forget, it was me who saw that he was the Christ first. Perhaps it was all three of them saying, well, this is what we would have done. If, you know, if that father had come to me with the boy, we would have, this is, yeah, don't worry about it. I don't know, whatever the reason. They have got it all wrong, haven't they? And so Jesus flips their thinking, or tries to flip their thinking again. And Jesus knows, like all good teachers, he knows the power of a good illustration. So he, so he takes this young child and, and he puts this young child by the side. Now, we've kind of just got to, you know, oh, 2,000 years later, Western society, um, you know, this moment we're thinking, ah, oh, Jesus kind of got this child by his side. Most of them would have been thinking, mm, I'm bit, what, why, what are you doing there? How insignificant. Because it wasn't, it wasn't that children were bad things, uh, not at all. But they, they were people, uh, they, they, they wouldn't have been um, just insignificant. Okay? They kind of can't give anything back. Um, better, better, uh, I've forgotten the word. Seen, not heard. Not heard, no. Don't see them or hear them. Anyway, you get what I'm trying to say. You get what I'm trying to say. But anyway, Jesus takes this child, so this, as it, the lowest of kind of status, that's what I'm getting at. Okay, the lowest of status. And he takes this little one and puts him by his side. And he says this remarkable thing. Verse 48. And he said to them, Look, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. You want to be great? You want to be you're talking about greatness? You want to be great? Well, receive, welcome the little children. Those of, of little significance. Those of low status. Those who can give nothing back. And do you see how Jesus shows the value of it in verse 48? That this humblest act of kindness, this receiving of a child, sets off this chain reaction that reaches heaven. Okay, you receive this little child, well, actually, it's like receiving me, Jesus says. And if you're receiving me, well, it's like you're receiving the Father who sent me. You see, serving those of, as it were, no importance is actually serving Jesus and serving the one who sent him. And again, he kind of emphasized it right at the end of verse 48. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. 
We follow Christ who has laid down all his rights and privileges. That's who we follow. So follow him. Follow him in that. Deny that search for power and significance. Stop stop looking for the, the recognition and respect. Welcome, serve others. And, and not just those of kind of high status who might be able to kind of repay it, but actually those who aren't able to raise yours. Serve those who don't usually get served. If you're going to be great, you serve the last and the least. That is true greatness. We follow Jesus. Now again, what does that look like for you at, at church, at home, at work? It might mean playing the set, your second instrument in the music band. You're not going to shine, but it's what's needed. Will you look out for those on Sunday who, who don't know anyone? Or will you go and just kind of head to your, to your friends after church? Will you do the job in your house that no one, no one likes doing? Parents, you're going to model this to your children, doing, doing those menial tasks that serve the rest of the family. At work, how are you going to relate to those who um, maybe you have authority over? We're going to follow Jesus by, and lead by, by serving. On to the last one. Did you have a nickname at school for a very brief time? I had the nickname Too Tall. Very, very imaginative. Um, well, there, there's a great nickname in the Bible that James and John had, the Sons of Thunder. Isn't that so much cooler? Um, although it wasn't said in a good way. Actually, it was a hot-headedness. And we get another example here from John in verse 49. John answered, answered see the connection again. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. It's a little bit rich, isn't it? The disciples try to stop someone doing what they failed to do. But you kind of see where they're coming from. They're like, who is this guy? He's not one of the twelve. But again, you see that their motives aren't entirely pure, verse 49. Um, we, we try to stop him because he does not follow with us. You see, it wasn't what the man was doing that was John's problem. It was who the man was or who he wasn't. He wasn't one of them. He, he didn't, John didn't want his place threatened by this kind of the works of this unknown exorcist. But see how Jesus responds, verse 50. 50. Jesus said to him, do not stop him. Fear the one who is not against you is for you. Jesus' point is that don't stop him. He, he's on our side. Don't stop him. He's on our side. I think that has implications for us today. Look, Jesus isn't saying don't be discerning. Right? Jesus comes down on false teaching extremely hard. But I think it is easy for us to be less inclusive than Jesus, to start from the default position of they're against us rather than for us or for Jesus, to be more precise. We had to show acceptance to all of God's people, rather than trying to puff up and build ourselves up by putting others down. So we're called 
in this chapter to listen to Jesus. We are called to trust Jesus. We're called to follow Jesus. He said that he is the Christ, the the one who's going to be crucified. He said, take up your cross, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Really? Yes. Yes. Affirmed in these dramatic ways, affirmed on that mountain as Jesus is changed, they get this glimpse of his glory as it's enforced by, by Moses and Elijah appearing with him by um, affirming that, he's, that Jesus is fulfilling what they've prophesied, by God's voice coming from heaven, listen to him. And almost learning from the, the, the wrong example of the, the disciples here, we're to follow Jesus' way in that laying down of ourselves to serve others. Let's pray as we close. Father, we ask that we would not be this, like this faithful, uh, faithless and twisted generation. Please would we indeed trust that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the crucified Christ, that we would trust him for our own salvation and we would follow him joyfully in the path that he has called us to, individually and as a church. Please work in us by your spirit, strengthening us to do so. In Jesus' mighty and glorious and precious name, amen.